big one has come again. He's here. He's ready to go. The big one is here. I said the biggie. <laughs> the biggie. Oh, the real thing. That's ah, the biggie, yeah. And I gotta say one thing before I go anywhere else. What's life about? It's about... Uh, uh, it's right at the tip of my tongue. I say, uh... I say that life is... It's about... <sighs> All together again now. It's good. It's time to dance. see some great developments, little straws in the wind that I think are just, 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 you know, it gives me a great warm feeling down in the pit of my gut here. For example, uh, you know, you usually think of England. Uh, I think most of us have our ideas of England, you know, based on David Niven, uh, you know, maybe Jack Hawkins. I think a lot of people think of England as Jack Hawkins or, or uh, Alec, Alec Guinness. Marching across the bridge at the River Kwai, you know. <laughs> hey, how many of you know the name of that song they whistled? It was not the River Kwai song. Correct. It was Colonel Bogey. And how does it go? Let's see you both whistle it in there. Very good, Nick. <laughs> Let's hear it. Come on, hit the, hit the button there. Come on. I want to hear whether you're really doing Come on, Nick. Come on. The union won't mind. <laughs> you don't think you're good enough of a whistler, huh? All right, okay, I'm, 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 I'm euchring you in here. I'm, I'm whistling something. What was I just whistling there? Which is another whistling song. What is that? Semper Fidelis. Nick. No, that was the Star Spangled Banner, Nick. You're closer. <laughs> but uh, seriously, though, uh, most of us think of England. You know, we think of England as... Uh, as being this place where uh, sort of elegant people come from. But uh, there's another England, which is a nitty-gritty one. And I'll never forget one night, uh, I was with an Englishman, and this was this was uh, on, on board the QE2. And it was on the, 
the uh, maiden voyage of the QE2. We were both on this thing outside of the Canary Islands. You know, the, the Queen Elizabeth II and all that. Isn't it kind of elegant to drop this? You know, I was on the maiden voyage. We really were, see. And it, we were just coming out of, out of the harbor on the Canary Islands. And this great brand new ship. And I was with this Englishman, a friend of mine, and uh, Reg Potterton. And he re isn't that a great English name, Reg Potterton? And he really is Reg Potterton. So he's, he's, he's very English. And uh, we're walking along down somewhere in the elegant section of the ship where we're going towards a cocktail party. Now, this is like a great big city. You know, it's a fantastic machine. And it's, it's uh, you know, enormously complex. And, and you can get lost for months on that ship, really. It has elevators going up and down and staircases and all kinds of doorways and endless numbers of, of, uh, of uh, well, I guess they call them decks and different compartments and stuff. Well, I still, to this day, we don't know what we saw. The elevator came up. There was an elevator that apparently came up out of the bowels of the ship. I mean, it was like where the working part is, and you could see all kinds of wiring and tubes and ducts and that. This elevator opened, and two guys suddenly were with us. They just sort of leaped out, two big gr grinning apparitions. They, they were strange-looking guys, and Red started laughing. I laughed. They just grinned at us. You know, they, they, had, they looked exactly like... Have you ever seen drawings by Hogarth? of 17th century English people, the street types, vassals, the grinning big teeth, the grinning wild maniacal looks, flat noses, real <laughs> strange looking. There they were, and they were out of the furnace gang or something aboard the QE2. They're two grinning, totally simple-minded, uh, basic, uh, ale-swilling, uh, basic English Knaves, I guess you can call them. They looked like knaves. They really did. They looked, yeah, violets. They were violets. That's exactly what they were. Two violets. And they were both laughing wildly. See, and they disappeared back into this blackness. And they were gone. Completely gone. And Rich turned to me and he says, He says, By George. He really does talk like that. He says, By George. He says, That was out of medieval England. And I said, It certainly was, Rich. I said, I, If I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. He says, by George, he said, those, they were right on it. And they were wearing strange things. They looked like they were wearing stocks or something. They had on, you know, the little leather pants that you always see, violets wear these tight little leather pants that ended at the knees. Now, I'm just telling you what we saw. And it was a fantastic moment. Well, now, that side of England is rarely talked about. I'm talking about the lusty, swilling side which you see in Tom Jones. If you ever get a chance to see that, Tom, you know, Tom Jones. This is not fiction. I mean, the, the term stout trencherman is an English term. And what is a stout trencherman? Well, that doesn't mean he's fat. That means he swells and he yells and he, you know, chicks in the, in the, in the sack, the whole bit, you know. I mean, that's a stout trencherman. Well, listen, listen here's, a, here's a contemporary, just a little note in the, in the wind, you know, just a little thing in the wind. John Furlong, this is from Higgum, England. John Furlong has installed draft milk alongside the beer in his pub. Well, you know what draft milk is. You know, can you imagine getting milk by draft? He's got draft milk. Why? He said the large number of his customers who were stopped by police for breath tests prompted this extraordinary move. 
Now think about that. Breath, you know what a breath test is? Well, that's to find out whether you're bagged, of course, if you're out there driving your, uh, your Wolseley and, you know, you're, you're Popeyed with drink and one foot is hanging out the back window and you're driving along singing an old English folk ballad, you know, drinking. So, oh, oh, yeah, you drive along and they stop you and they put the breath test on you. Well, you know what milk does? Well, the, well, the milk is, is, is supposedly uh, kills it. I mean, you drink milk after you've gotten <laughs> bagged. So, in other words, what he's really saying is that they drink so much and they get bagged so much, they got to put in a special milk thing to get rid of their bad breath. Now, that, that uh, kind of... Now, here's another a typical English scene now. You know, Englishmen are funny uh, in, in an in a interesting way. Uh, have you ever watched the old uh, Guinness, Guinness movies like... Uh, or uh, the man in the white suit is an example, but there was uh, the other one, the gang, the gang, the Lavender Hill Mob. Fantastic movie. It's just really great. And and I think uh, Guinness is so funny. I mean, Guinness is, to me, Guinness is a, is a really fine comic actor. He plays it with the, with the with a little wild look in the eye. You ever see him in Our Man in Havana? My, oh, fantastic. Well, anyway, uh, you can just see Guinness playing this. My favorite Guinness movie of all, if I'm going to have to be pressed to the wall, would have to be The Horse's Mouth. When he was playing, uh, what was the name of the character? Gully, that's right, Gully Jimson. And I remember when he's in the in the phone booth. This is uh, the bar. This is the big... <laughs> Fantastic scene when he's always trying to—he's always trying to get money out of these people. He says, "This is the Dame Woodford Smithson, and we're raising a fund for Mister Gully Gibson." <laughs> you see the cop walk by. See, you know, the great movie. And I, I liked—I liked the the, the the scene when he's drawing his fantastic feet. He had a, <laughs> an enormous. But the, this this is a, this is a kind of a gusto. That's one of my favorite writers, by the way. And anybody ask me who, I think Joyce Carey is a great un. Uh, uh, un, unsung writer uh, who, who really has a, a really sense of life in, in, his, in his work. Do you ever read much of Carrie at all? Nick, do you, you should read the book, Horse's Mouth. Yeah, you've tried? Can't get it, huh? Hard to get. I think I got it around someplace. I'll give it to you. It's a really fine book. But uh, nevertheless, here's, here's a typical English scene now. Listen to this. West Bridford. West Bridgeford, England. Now, wherever West Bridgeford is, Whenever Bill Jeff, 68, coughed in the night, his pet goose, Gert, began honking loudly. The coughing and the honking went on all night, every night, until the neighbors complained and said one or the other has to go. Either Gert stays or Bill leaves. So Bill got rid of Gert for a pet alligator. End of comment. They don't say any more about it. <laughs> I mean, the idea of a guy 68 years old living with a pet goose is right out of Gully Jemson. And the fact that every time he sneezes, the goose goes, wah, 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 and everybody wakes up for blocks around. Now, here's, here's another English one. Wait a minute. I've got another one here. You know, the, the thing about, uh, I think, that, that, that makes the Englishmen what they are. Here, here, listen to this one. Nottingham. Now, you know about Nottingham. What was Nottingham famous for? All right, the sheriff of? And uh, the, Now, there was a movie recently that was, that was based in Nottingham. Did you see it on television? Think about it. Don't you remember the one with the, with the uh, mobs? The gang in the black leather? 
That was Nottingham. No, not the current Clockwork Orange, not the Clockwork Orange. But there was an old movie, that an English an English movie that was on TV, and it was based on uh, the mob. You see, they've had a lot of problems with that type of Hell's Angel thing in England. Uh, you know, the, the the mob. Which reminds me, this is W O R in New York. Okay, we have the book fine people with us here tonight. And uh, the only way, they say, to judge book clubs is by the list of titles. Well, that's logical. The mass book clubs feature books that appeal to the masses, and the book fine club seeks out only the best of contemporary fiction and nonfiction, like The Game of the Foxes, Uncommon Sense, Memoirs of Hope by Charles de Gaulle, and so forth. So uh, if you'd like to join the club, you're, they're putting on special inducements now. They'll send you for only $1 plus postage and handling Two extraordinary books that will cost about $15 at bookstores. Jean-Francois Ravel's Without Marks or Jesus and Lawyer F. Lee Bailey's The Defense Never Rests. That's a dollar apiece if you join the club, of course. So call and find out about it. It's TN71441. And as a book find member, you're obliged to purchase just two more books in a whole year. The number is TN71441. Or send your name and address, no money, to Book Find, W-O-R, New York. Book Find, W-O-R, New York. Well, that, that particular movie was about uh, Nottingham. It was Nottingham, England, which is a big industrial area. But listen, Nottingham, England, the site of a black coffin and three undertaker hats abandoned beside the freshly dug grave in the lonely churchyard sent a frantic passerby running to the police. Now, isn't that a great opening for an English movie? You could just see this, uh, the moors, and you see three undertaker hats, derbies, or high silk hats, and a black coffin, and they, the, <laughs> the thing swirled. And you know what the investigation says? They don't know what it's about. In other words, investigation has come to a dead end. <laughs> it's a mysterious English phenomenon. A coffin and three hats. Now, that, that uh, England is a strange country. I mean, uh, by strange, th there are mysterious things that happen in England. Did you ever see one of the finest movies, I think, uh, uh, on that subject? One of, my, one of my favorite actors who died at a very early age. I think he was about 24, 25, and uh, died under curious circumstances. He was on a on a crash diet for a movie role, and uh, he lost weight. And because he was losing so much weight, he had a heart attack. And, and he was only 24, 25. Who is that actor? He played in a in a in a movie which, if you ever get a chance to see it on television, watch it. It's a it's really well done. It's called The Lodger. Laird Krieger, that is correct. Laird Krieger, you hear very little about these days, but Laird Krieger was sort of like he at the time when he came up as an actor. Yeah, you're hearing some strange things on this show tonight. That Laird Krieger, when he came up as an actor, among actors, I'm telling you about. Now listen to me here, friends. Uh, among actors, at the time when Krieger came up and began to make movies. He was a very young guy, by the way, and he always looked much, much older. 
As a matter of fact, Krieger looked like he was a guy in his, well, probably early 60s when you saw him playing. He, he had this solid, uh, distinguished look about him. He was a very, uh, a very curious actor. But when he came up among actors, his reputation was almost legendary. That he was he was so legendary among actors that the word Laird Krieger was almost like mentioning, uh, well, he was like Forson Wells in a way. He was he was the they, he was thought to be among actors the the actor that could do anything. He was just a miraculous actor. And had he lived, no one knows what kind of a great actor he could have been. But he was around 25 when he died, 24, 25. If you get a chance to see him play the lodger now there's a classic example of the kind of thing we're talking about with the black coffin and the three undertaker hats the lodger was a movie about jack the ripper and uh the, the mysterious uh dripping london streets of late night when the lodger was up in his room <laughs> oh boy <laughs> but it was such a well done movie and uh, and uh, the sad thing about it is the movie not sad but the really interesting thing about it is the movie was treated from a very different way than you would think of jack the ripper you 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 got to have a curious kind of uh, sympathy for this lonely guy who was cut off from everything and this incidentally was based on uh, one of the real genuine one of the genuine reports of the police at the time of jack the ripper the Lodger. This guy was one of the great suspects. Uh, very interesting movie, but uh, that's that's a part of it. Now, now you know, it's funny how when you when you think of different countries, how we we think of them in terms of movies. We we really do. Uh, it's just natural in the 20th century. Now now let's take the Japanese. Now, when you think of the Japanese, what do you think of? Well, all right. Uh, the, the one of, I'm talking about Japanese movies. You, you see these Japanese movies. What do you think? You, th you think of uh, of uh, say somebody like uh, Mafune, you know, going, you know, and he's got this he's got this big stave and he's killing fifty guys. You know, that's that's now that's one movie, but you don't see those much on TV. That though they don't often get on TV. You know, there's some great ones. You remember the great one that Mafune made uh, when he was uh, the. Uh, he, he returning. It was almost like a, a western. He came to this town, and evil was on all sides, and he fought it off. Well, Mufune is one type of guy. Now, what else do you think of in, in connection with the Japanese monsters? All right, everybody relates to the Japanese monster movie. They got thousands of monster movies. They they really they really. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they now. All right, now what do you think in terms? How do you think a Japanese monster movie looks now? How does the monster look? Well, he looks in two two ways. There's the one monster. There's two types of monsters that the Japanese run to. One monster, of course, it looks like a gigantic iguana lizard. And uh, he's always rearing his head, and he's usually caused by what? Right. The atomic bomb. And, and invariably, of course, naturally, they would, uh, you know, they're very conscious of this. And, and a voice would say, you know... Uh, they usually open up and the voice comes on and says, uh, man in this great tampering with with the vast forces of nature has unleashed things which he will never yet realize the importance of. And in the depths of the sea, as a result of strange mutations caused by the atomic... You see the atomic bomb. And then you see, coming out of the ocean, you see this head. It's going... Wah! 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 <laughs> And, of course, the next thing you see, you see all these people fleeing, 
And then there's the picture of the young Japanese scientist with his round-eyed girlfriend, and uh, and uh, they're <laughs> they're about to do. And, and invariably, you notice that in almost every Japanese film of that kind, you, they wind up with jet planes, and because that also was very important to the Japanese. You know, the whole idea of airplanes. Japanese got very airplane conscious. What through uh, through the uh, uh, kamikazes and so forth. By the way, if you ever talked to a guy who was in a kamikaze attack, I want to tell you a story here now for just a brief second uh, about that. You know, the kamikaze is almost legendary, and uh, it is. It's a. It's it's a legendary thing. I mean, most people it almost is. A, it's unreal. You know, you just hear a kamikaze, and it's kind of a. People even make little jokes about kamikazes and all that. But uh, I had the chance a couple of days ago, it just happened uh, inadvertently, I'm riding along through San Francisco. I was out doing a thing in San Francisco, and I'm in a car with a guy who had been a deck NCO. In fact, he was chief, uh, a chief on uh, the, the arrestor gear. You know what an arrestor gear operation is aboard a carrier? Well, an arrestor gear is the gear that arrests a plane that is landing on a carrier deck. Now, they have four or five... Uh, flexible, actually they're like big flexible, uh, uh, sometimes they were rubber, all different types of equipment. When, when the plane comes on, it has a hook, and it may catch the first the first barrier, the second or the third, and then boom, you know, pulls it back. Well, he was the NCO in charge of that on two major carriers during World War II. Uh, one of them, I believe, is the Ranger, I'm not sure, but I think one of them, one of them was a Ranger, and the other one was... Uh, I don't think, the Yorktown, I think. But nevertheless, he was on these carriers, see? So he had fought through all these various battles of Truk and the Battle of Rabaul and so forth. And so just by coincidence, we were riding along, and, and uh, he was talking about things. We got on the subject of it, and he was a re uh, retired chief. And so I just happened to think of it. I says, did you ever did you ever get yourself involved in a kamikaze attack? And he turned and looked at me and said, was I in a... Oh, man, he said, I'll tell you, he says, you see the guy down there that's the doorman at the Fairmont Hotel? And I said, yeah. He said, well, he was on the same ship with me. And he said, uh, he was in the hospital for nine months as a result of a kamikaze attack. He said, the, the plane hit the gun tub that he was in. He says, everybody in the gun tub was killed, with the exception of this one guy who is now one of the doormen at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. If you go there, what are they? So he, was, so, uh, he said, I says, well, what, what was it like, you know, being in a kamikaze? He says, I'll never forget. He says, one kamikaze. Listen to this story. This is the kind of stuff you'll never see in the movie. He said, because, of, you know, I was arresting gear. He says, we were taking planes back on, on board. Uh, there was a patrol coming in of bearcats that were real low on fuel. So he says, they were coming in, and uh, they were... They were slapping down on the deck, and uh, he says, all of a sudden, no, these were wildcats, I'm sorry, these were wildcats coming in, and he says, suddenly we, uh, there was a report of kamikaze attack coming in, and he says, he says, I just got turned around, he said, it all happened so fast, he said, we've been under kamikaze attacks for some time now, and, and he said, we had several near misses, we'd hit, one had hit the fantail once, and he said, but this, this one, he said, I turned, he said, just at that instant, I turned, and he says, I saw this airplane coming in. He says, he wasn't three feet off the water. He says, he was coming in low. And he says, he's coming in low and absolutely full bore. And I said, what kind of an airplane was he? He said, a Zeke. Uh, a Zeke, in, in case you're not uh, familiar, is a Zero, which is a single-engine fighter plane. And he said he had a bomb 
He said he could see it. He says the bomb was attached underneath it. See, this is not an ordinarily bomb-carrying airplane, but he was carrying a bomb. This is the whole point of it. So he says he's coming along. He says, and he says he's not more than a, a half a mile away from me. He's closing at about 350 miles an hour. And he says, my God, he says, I turned, and I saw him coming. And he says, and of course, everything in the deck, he says, we couldn't level. They couldn't lower the guns low enough to hit him. He was that low. So they're boom, boom, boom. They're firing all around him. Over him, he says, and the, the, the pom-poms are going like mad. He said, I knew he was going to get us. He says, he'd come right at us amidships. He says, I hit the deck. He says, and, and the next thing I knew, he just came right up over. He just zoomed at the last instant. He just went right up over the over the edge of the deck, and he just slammed into the deck. He just, he, bam, he slammed, slid across the deck. He says, he was about, oh, maybe 100 feet away from him. He says, he slid directly across the deck and smashed into the front of the islands. He just... And he says, just crashed. And he said, well, the next thing he knew, he says, I'll never forget this sight as long as I live. He says, the pilot of the airplane slid the entire length of the deck. He says, he was lying flat. The pilot was thrown out. He says, he slid just the on this deck. You know, this uh, the decks, by the way, in case you don't know what a deck is made of on a, on a plane, on a, on a carrier. They're made of wood. And uh, this... There's a special type of wood. See, so here are these big planks. They're, they're plain, very smooth, of course. But he slid along this deck. He's just, he's just sliding flat. So he didn't bounce or anything. He just, he just didn't, he just, bam, the plane blew up. And he said the great roar of flame everywhere. He said, he said the gasoline flew all over the place. He says the bomb didn't go off. He says, had the bomb gone off, he said, we'd have been broken in half instantly. So some reason or other, the bomb didn't work. He says, and the bomb itself... It's a wild story. It says the bomb went right through the base of the the island, penetrated the deck, went right down through three decks. This bomb just went right through three decks, just boom, 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 like that, like a gigantic 500-pound bowling ball. He said it just went right down there, and it, it lodged down in, in one of the storage compartments, just went down into the hell-bent for election. Bam, that was it. And, of course, they were afraid it was a time bomb at that point. Well... He said that the pilot slid across the deck, just slid flat. He just slid about 200 feet. Well, you can imagine sliding like that. And then the body stopped. And he said for a second, everything hung there like that. He says there were flames coming out of the bottom of the island. He said you could see pieces of the plane all over the place, he said. And, and, and we were waiting for this bomb to go off. And he said here was the pilot lying on the deck. He said, with that, about 20 guys who were lying all flat on the deck at the concussion of this thing, they were expecting to get blown up, you see, got up, and he said they were kind of stunned. He says, I, I, I didn't know, it all happened so fast. He said, I was kind of kind of knocked out. So he said, we walk, the next thing he knew, he said, here we are, we're all standing now around the body of the Japanese kamikaze pilot who's lying there on the deck. <laughs> He says, we're just so standing there in a circus. Nobody's saying anything. He says, it's, it's like a, out, of a, out of a curious dream or something. He says, and he was wearing, he said, I'll never forget what he was wearing. I said, what was he wearing? And I asked him, he says, well, he had on his, he had on a helmet. You've seen pictures of him. He said he had on a helmet. But he said he had on, the thing that hit him right away is he was wearing this bright green scarf. He said he had a very bright green scarf. And he said, one of the guys reached down. And he was just lying there. He said, one of the guys reached down, he just takes the scarf and just pulls it off. He just pulled it, slid it out like that. And he said, there's blood on it and everything else. And he said, and here, 
here was this kamikaze pilot lying there in his in his jacket, and he said, "What got us about it was he was a little so tiny." He said he was a little tiny guy. He said he was about looked like he was about four feet nine, a little bitty guy, and he said. It was a very strange moment, he said, because he looked, he, 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 Kamikaze had been sort of mysterious to him. And he says, and here's this little guy lying on the deck. He said, about four feet nine, he says, and he said, so help me God, he raised his hand, he says, he looked like he was about 12. And he says, we just stood there, he says, all of us. He says, the ship is burning, he said, the, the bomb is going down through 500, you know, down through the decks down there, 500 pound bomb. And he said there were two or three guys were killed in it, by the way, that were hit there by this uh, this thing. And he said, the places, and we're all standing around looking at the body of this guy. And he says, curiously enough, when he fell, when he slid, his jacket, he said he had a leather jacket, and the jacket had gotten torn, you know, sliding like he was. And he says he, there were slit pockets in the jacket. And he said, I remember these nutty details that his jacket had torn open and some... Uh, some uh, Philippine invasion money had fallen out. And he says he's lying on the deck, and here are some of these, these Philippine invasion dollars floating around, or yen. They were Japanese money that the Japanese had printed up, and apparently this guy flew out of the Philippines, see? And he says here was his Philippine money and his green scarf, and he says and this 12-year-old, he looked like a 12-year-old kid, he says, lying there. He says we just stood there for a couple of seconds. He says nobody knew what to do. Isn't that a weird sight? Now that that is a story. I says, well, what did you guys do then? He says, well, he said, <laughs> he said, the, he says, then then of course everybody sort of uh, it, it it broke up that minute because we were under attack again. He says a couple of others whistled over, and he said the next thing I knew they had taken his body, uh, just the way they were picking up anybody else that was hit. He says they took him down to the sick bay, and there was this little kamikaze product down there. And uh, I said, well, what'd you do then? He says, well, he was dead, of course. He says so. Uh, the day after they had a military funeral, he said, when we he said, we had lost five or six guys in this this attack, and he says we had a military funeral. He says we just we just put them uh, down with the rest of them. You know, they had a regular funeral. They read the thing. He said that's all they could think to do. And he said so. What they did was they put his and he had a Japanese flag with him, and they put this Japanese flag over the bag that they you know they put him in a bag. See, when they lower him like that, and he said we could put the Japanese flag. He says it was a strange moment. You never see things like this. Isn't that a weird story? Now, <laughs> now, now, here, here, you, here. Now that that's one side. But what else uh, to, to talk about the, the the Japanese monsters? Getting back to that, what a, what is the other type of Japanese monster you think of in terms of you know monsters? Well, okay, here it is. Listen to this. Haven't you seen Japanese robots? They go great for robots. Giant machines with flashing lights. You mean you haven't seen those things with revolving heads? And they usually come down from another planet. And they, they, they you know, giant things. They go, ah, they shoot out electronic rays. They usually send out the atomic rays. You know, they go, ah, and a building explodes. You've seen those things. Well, here, here's why I'm bringing this up. <laughs> Just exactly to show you that, that in a curious way, the movies that we think of in England, of England, actually do reflect a curious kind of England, you know, like the mysterious black uh, uh, coffin with the three mysterious hats, and they don't know what caused it. The guy with the, with the milk that he pulls next to the pub. Listen to this one. Yokohama. The city fire department has announced now that it has a giant firefighting robot, which is eight and a half feet tall, 
weighs 1,322 pounds and walks through burning buildings, dousing flames with its sprinklers. <laughs> it's a giant monster. It walks stiff-legged, it looks exactly like a man, and sends out television pictures with its camera eyes. <laughs> think about that for a minute. That's fantastic. Well, that's a great idea when you think about it. But instead of sending firemen into a building, they send this robot in, and it has TV cameras in its eyes, and it clanks in, and it squirts water. Well, now, I would say that that, that, that that idea, which is such a weird idea, it's a great, strange, weird idea, can only come from people who think in terms of monsters. I mean, it's a kind of direct... <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying? Or am I reaching here at this point? But it, it, it has the sound of a Japanese monster movie you know can't you see this thing walking in squirting water or, or squirting out flames now all you would have to do to change this thing instead of being a firefighting monster you could have an, an evil fighting monster and it wades in with the gang and goes it has electronic rays and it squirts out of his eyes Wah! Hey, you know that's a great idea that that instead of having you know when when, when there's a big uh, when when gangs are trapped in a building you've seen this all the time the poor police have to fight it out there's always about three cops get fired just can you imagine the giant robot cop that they have that they turn on and he just walks into this hail of bullets give up give up you are through we have you covered clank 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 one more one more shot and I will return the fire and then pow 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 somebody shoots and then kaboom he has a 75 millimeter cannon in his finger he just points the kaboom <laughs> oh man I don't know I'm sick <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> but the, everywhere you, you know I, I just can't help but be fascinated by now all this stuff comes out of newspapers this is why I never stop reading newspapers you just can't stop well, listen to this little thing. Every All over the world, wild things are happening. Listen to this one in Venezuela. Did you hear what's happening in Venezuela recently? I mean, you don't think much about Venezuela, do you? Well, all right, listen to this one. You can get the whole picture of Venezuela. This is in Barquiza. Let's see. Barquisimeto. I would say it, it's, it's pronounced Barquisimeto. Barquisimeto, Venezuela. An angry mob demonstrated outside the jail in this small Venezuela town, threatening to lynch two men accused of having sold dogs as goats to local butchers. Okay, that starts you. Now, wait a minute. You haven't heard the details. Police say they caught Incendio Vasquez and Evaristo Guedes red-handed as Vasquez tried to stretch the neck of a dog called Champion to make it look more like a goat. Several detectives went to a ramshackle hut after complaints by citizens that their goat meat, traditional meat supply of the area, had taken on an unusual flavor lately. In jail, Evarista told reporters, Incendio is innocent. He was only stroking Champion. In no way was he trying to stretch his neck. Police said that the dog was more dead than alive when rescued. They accused butchers faced with a shortage of goat meat of having taken part in the fraud. But I'd like to see him stretching the neck of a dog so he looks like a goat. Now, now, <laughs> now that, now that there, there is a scene. Now, now, you're, wait a minute. Now, just a minute. Uh, to, to people who've never traveled much, that sounds like a grotesque, strange scene. Yet, have you ever had goat meat? 
I have. I have had goat meat, and and I like goat meat. Now, I, I must honestly tell you this. I do not know whether I've ever had dog meat. Consciously, I cannot say that I have had it. But there have been places where I have gone that I have suspected. <laughs> now, if not outright dog meat, I suspect there is a possibility. Well, I noticed in the neighborhood there were a lot of stray cats. Let's put it that way. That, uh, that you, you, here, here it is. Now, one of the great sights that I've seen in my, my traveling, you know, most people when they travel, they, they tend, generally go and look at monuments and museums. Forget it. Uh, you can see all the monuments you want with the, any museum in your own town. You, know, you can go to any. To me, the monument scene leaves me cold. The temple scene, that I just, ugh, you know, after a while, I, you know, I get templed right up to my ears. However, one day in a city, now I'll describe the city. You tell me where it was. In a city, I was in a, a uh, the market section. Now, there's usually two or three markets in a city. Now, in, in most cases, there's the elegant market. Just like here in New York City, we have Fifth Avenue, right? That's not exactly the same as if you were to go down, say, on, uh, down on 14th Street around 1st Avenue to buy yourself some shoes, right? Okay. Now, you take the market over here. There's some elegant markets over here on the, in the, on 57th Street off 3rd Avenue where you can, elegant grocery stores. Now, if you go over on 8th Avenue, uh, over there, say, in the 40s, not far, there, there's some great markets in there, by the way. Tremendous fruit markets and all that stuff. Right on 8th Avenue there. Uh, that's a different scene, right? Well, that's true in other countries. So most people, when they go to the market section, generally go to the what, what is the really the equivalent of Fifth Avenue. But the real market section is something else. Now, I was in the market produce section of this city. A lot of flowers they were selling there. It was like the flower section there, wholesale stuff and that. But there was one shop, little tiny narrow streets. There was one shop that was completely open. And it, it was open, and it didn't have a front, but it was open, you could see, and it was lit very brightly. It was so brightly lit, it must have 25 or 50 light bulbs, and it was just a little place lit, lit up like a, the interior of a refrigerator, really. And they had, well, they had, or the best way I can describe it, they had racks all built along the walls, racks, right to the ceiling, that had hooks coming out from them. They looked like big coat hooks or something, all coming out, made out of metal, right? And they had racks that hung down from the from the front of this thing so that they faced you. That's all that was on this in this place. There were no counters, just these racks. What was on the racks? Skinned sheep heads. All looking at you. Thousands of them. Heads of sheep. Skinned. And they were skinned. They were completely skinned. They were pink. And they had eyes in them. Blue eyes, curious. There were hundreds of them all looking at you. And when I when I pulled up, you know, we were going along, and I'm just walking along, see, through this place, and I had never seen anything like that. It looked like there were about 500 sheep, 500 of these crazy, uh, looked like other world heads all peering out and up and down the walls. See, they were on the walls. So the people were buying them. They would come in there, and they would point to one. They would see one up there, and the guy would reach up, and he'd pull it up, and he would put it in a, wrap it up in a, in a, in a bag, and he would weigh it, see, so much per pound, see. He would just wrap it up, and then he would, they, they'd go out with this, this sheep head. Now, what country was it? 
Very good. Fantastic. It was Greece, as a matter of fact. And what city was it? All right, I'll t it was Athens, obviously. Now, uh, <laughs> that's the... Now, okay. Now, that that is, is one of the great sites that I've seen, it, it just is in the market. Now, I'll tell you another one. You're curious for another one. All right. I'll ask you what this was. Now, this this will... Uh, this, 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 this I don't think you'll get. If you do, I'll be very much surprised if you get it. I was in another market. You ready for this one now? I was in another market, and in this market, it was an early morning. It was dawn. It was just so early, it was the light hadn't even yet come up. They had in this market, hanging from big wooden racks, they had huge skins that were, were completely uh, had been uh, shaved there was no there was skin uh, no hair on them they were complete skin of some kind leather skins and it was filled with cheese sort of a liquid cheese semi liquid goat like cheese it was goat cheese as a matter of fact but liquid uh, almost like cottage cheese and each one of these skins had a little spigot like at the bottom and when the guy would sell some of this stuff He'd take a, a, a paper container and he'd just squirt it in <laughs> like that. And he must have had, they looked like giant whales hanging. He had about ten of them. What country was that? It was not Greece. Nope, it was not India. Well, you'll be very surprised when I tell you where it was. And the city was Beersheba. And it was in the Arab Bedouin market. And they, they were all at dawn there. They had come in on a Thursday morning, which is their day that they trade there. And they were they brought their camels in. And they were all walking around buying goat cheese out of these giant skins. Another thing that I saw there, which was very interesting, <laughs> they had, and there was ice. They had gotten some ice. This guy was selling nothing but the eyes of sheep. He had, he had a big metal bowl that was filled with sheep eyes surrounded by ice. So if I were to describe <laughs> these, well, I can tell you other ones. Uh, other, other, this is kind of interesting, isn't it, to describe a place and see if you can get it. Uh, all right, here's another place. I saw a place where they were selling beer. And they had thousands of glasses, thousands, I mean, literally thousands. And the, the person who was selling the beer had a big hose and was squirting beer in it with hoses. And, and the beer was going so fast that they couldn't keep up with it. They would squirt it. What country was that? Thousands of beers. Australia. <laughs> they don't draw beer. They squirt it with a hose, just like the kind you wash your car with. And they, they were drinking that stuff up so fast, she was slopping on the floor. Man, that's everywhere you look. Oh, this is WOI New York. Stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News. News in detail on the hour from the WOI Newsroom. It is now obvious that Transworld Airlines and other domestic air carriers are faced with a maximum security problem how to keep operating during the current bomb threat wave. Airports across the nation have imposed stringent security precautions, and the baggage search is almost a routine move. Earlier today, a bomb smashed the cockpit of an empty TWA jetliner 
While it was on the ground at the Las Vegas airport, the entire side of the 707 was ripped open, and this occurred even though the aircraft had been searched twice and was under guard. The TWA spokesman declared, whoever put it on the airplane had to know his way around the industry. He would have had to know a considerable amount about the aircraft. The FBI reported another device had been found aboard a United Airlines plane in Seattle, and this was after United revealed that it had received a ransom demand phone call in San Francisco. In Chicago today, 30-year-old Roy King, an unemployed laborer, was sentenced to three years imprisonment. King had pleaded guilty to a charge that he tried to extort $22,000 from American Airlines two months ago in a bomb threat scheme. No bomb was found. King never got the money. Negotiations have again broken off between the striking Amalgamated Transit Union and New Jersey's largest bus firm, the strike-bound Transport of New Jersey. Mediators in Edison had no comment, but one identified source said there will be no direct talks tomorrow. The bus strike is entering its second week. The last bargaining session was short and not very sweet. It lasted 35 minutes, and the union man said the bus firm had made no new money offer. Congresswoman Bella Abzug has no longer a congressional district to represent. That was part of a reapportionment plan approved tonight in Albany. With more details, here is WR's John Kelly. The Republican plan to reapportion the state's congressional districts was approved by the state legislature tonight 